My name is Dr. Howard Lyon, Senior Chair of the History Department at New Haven College. I'm also the best-selling biographer of Margaret Thatcher, when the devil assumed a very pleasing shape. Due to circumstances beyond my control, I find myself with a lot of free time on my hands. I decided to turn my biographical prowess to the fictional Cheers verse and write the definitive life story of Fraser Crane, using only the data provided by Cheers, Wings, and 11 seasons of his titular sitcom. In our last episode, we covered the dramatic ending of Fraser and Lilith's marriage and Fraser's decision to move back to Seattle. It broke my heart that I couldn't tell you this part of the story myself, but my lawyer suggested that I refrain from talking about divorce on the show. Sometimes it makes me say terrible things about the man my wife is currently dating and about the things I may or may not have done which put him in the hospital. I do apologize that you had to listen to that actor, Austin, or whatever. I heard some of the episode, and I feel like I've been scammed. She said she was a voice-over expert on her Fiverr profile. Hmm, not so. Rest assured, I've been bombarding Fiverr's customer support team for hours and hours and hours trying to get my $12 back. But as Fraser returned to his hometown, I too returned to this program that has many, many listeners on the edge of their seats. Who knew there would be such an appetite for this sort of thing? My agent Ryan has been leaving me nonstop voicemails. He said that if I started writing about someone named Michael Scott, then all of my legal expenses would be covered. Anyways... Fraser had left Massachusetts. He set himself up in a luxury apartment, number 1901, in the Elliott Bay Towers. This exclusive building was set on the Counterbalance, one of Seattle's steepest slopes. Fraser lived on the 19th floor and had a spectacular view of the Space Needle, and on a clear day, he could even see Mount Rainier. He decorated his new home with African art, a Chihui sculpture, a lamp by Corbu, a chair by Eames, another chair by Wasili, and the sofa was a reproduction of one that Coco Chanel had in her palace atelier. He also had a brand new job, one that married his love of psychiatry and his love of performing. Once Fraser had a taste of this line of work with the Crane Train to Mental Wellbeing lecture tour, there was no turning back. Somehow Fraser. A man with no experience on the radio got a job at KACL 780 AM, a Seattle institution founded in 1947. Little information is provided about how this inexperienced doctor got a plum time slot, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., right out of the gate. As a biographer, my head is swimming with possibilities. Maybe Fraser met a KACL producer during a lecture circuit. Maybe it was random happenstance an executive heard Fraser's elegant voice during one of his trips to Seattle. Or maybe blackmail? Maybe blackmail. It worked for me. On Friday, May 21st, 1993, the Fraser Crane Show debuted on KACL. 
He played host to callers with mental health issues and gave them nuggets of psychological wisdom to ease their suffering. Earlier that day, Fraser found that his initial producer, a man named Dave, had suddenly quit. Right before showtime, he met Dave's replacement, a Wisconsinite with a bafflingly thick Texas accent named Roz Doyle. She would eventually become a pillar in Fraser's life, but for now, she was simply trying to help a radio novice get through his show. Fraser's first catchphrase was, If you can feel, I can heal. He had a lot of work to do. Later that day, Fraser visited his father. He met Marty's dog for the first time, a feisty Jack Russell Terrier named Eddie. Marty, only interested in the game on TV, rattled off a catchphrase that had it. I'm listening. For the first few weeks on air, Fraser, as the kids say, showed his whole ass. He was a dreadful on-air talent. He dropped commercials, left dead air, scrambled up the station's call letters, spilled yogurt on the control boards, and worst of all, had difficulty helping his callers. And beyond work, there was ample dysfunction in Fraser's life. Marty, still living alone, slipped and fell on his bathroom floor. Something had to be done, and Niles offered a helpful solution. Marty could move in with Fraser, while he and Maris covered the cost of a live-in home care worker. This person could see to Marty's needs and assist him with much-needed physical therapy. Fraser begrudgingly agreed, and soon Marty and the recliner he had enjoyed since 1968 moved into Fraser's apartment. I had a live-in maid once. She found my collection. Then, I didn't have a maid. Fraser hosted several applicants for the home care worker position and made sure to look for candidates who were experienced and thorough. During this process, he met a young woman named Daphne Moon. She was spacey, immodest, and a self-proclaimed psychic. Fraser wanted nothing to do with her. Marty hired her right away. Daphne was born in 1966 in Manchester, England, to Gertrude and Harry Moon, and was the youngest of nine children, eight of them boys. Her father was a drunk, her mother cruel. She had a hard childhood. She played pool at the seedy bars of Manchester at age six, and she wasn't afraid to get into fights with the local boys. At 12, she starred in an English TV program called Mind Your Knickers about a group of ethnically diverse 12-year-olds in a girls' boarding school. She played Emma, the spunky one, and did so for the next four years. She became a decorated pool champion, bred show rats, and ended up a wild child, hitchhiking, drinking, shoplifting, When Fraser and Niles were her age, they were studying Shakespeare and building model submarines. Daphne was taking lovers and running off to London. In 1986, Daphne started working with people with disabilities. 
A few years later, in 1992, she packed her bags and moved to Seattle. And eventually, she found herself at Fraser's doorstep in the spring of 1993, or as I call it, the Jurassic Park year. Daphne moved into Fraser's home and immediately went to work, putting Marty through a series of painful stretches and agonizing massages. Shortly after, she met Niles. And from the first moment he laid eyes on her, the younger Crane developed an agonizing crush. As millions already know, this crush goes on to become something much greater, but not in this episode of The Fraser Files, so temper your expectations, please. I just want to toot my own horn here and discuss how I came to 1966 as Daphne's birth year. You see, we know how old her mother Gertrude was. She was born in 1925, as revealed in the season 6 episode Hot Ticket. We also know that Harry and Gertrude Moon got married by a minister in a church in 1961, as revealed in the season 9 episode Moons Over Seattle. We also know that Gertrude and Harry Moon have eight other children, Billy, Simon, Nigel, Stephen, Michael, Reginald, Peter, and David. If Gertrude was pregnant when she got married, and if she had one baby every nine months, that would make Daphne's month and year of birth September 1967. Jane Leaves, the actor who plays Daphne, was born in 1961, so we only have so many years of wiggle room with that. Yes, I can see her playing someone six years younger than her real age, but five just seems right to me. That is the limit of my imagination. So, I think at least one set of moon boys were twins, and that puts Daphne right at 1966, making her 27 years old when she first crosses paths with the cranes. Some may disagree with me. Some may laugh at me. Some may think, sitting alone in my apartment day after day, counting off months in the 60s with all the lights out, while Fraser reruns loop over and over on my TV, some may think that this is not the way a man should live. But I embrace it. Hmm? <laughs> I've learned to love it. It's not sad. It's not sad at all. As 1993 churned on, Fraser's career began to blossom. He had gotten the hang of being a radio host. And honestly, how hard could it be? I'm doing it right now. A child could do this. He started to date again. Nothing serious, but he was putting himself out there. And he even hired an agent, B.B. Glazer. He found a coffee shop across the street from KACL that had a warm atmosphere and warm coffee. <laughs> it was called Café Nervosa. Fraser immediately became a regular, and we later find out that he would spend over $3,000 a year at Nervosa, almost $5,000 in today's money. That evens out to about $1,370 a day, which I guess isn't that crazy. I spent way more than that on replica swords. I have one, uh, a reproduction of Erendite, the Sword of Lancelot. I had to sell my Plymouth for it, but it was absolutely worth it. 
Fraser's journey from rocky transplant to man about town did not go unnoticed by his peers. He was nominated in 1994 for a CB Award in the category Outstanding Achievement for Informational Programming in Radio, his first nomination for anything. He lost the award, but it seemed like he had won in the much more challenging competition known as life. He had a good job, and he and producer Roz Doyle were becoming fast friends. He also met and worked with a number of passionate broadcasters at KACL. He worked with Bob Bulldog Briscoe, host of the Gonzo Sports Show, Father Mike Mancuso, host of Religion on the Line, Bonnie Weems, the Auto Lady, Gil Chesterton of Gil Chesterton's Restaurant Beat, Amber Edwards of Amber Edwards Book Chat, Leo Pascale, host of The Happy Chef, Nanette Stewart, host of Pet Chat, Helen Grogan, host of Ma Nature's Gardening Show, Gertie Olson, host of Gertie's Grab Bag, Miss Judy, host of the Arts and Crafts Hour, Clint Weber, host of Health Watch, Aunt Penny, host of The Story Lady, Bert, host of Bert the Backyard Gardener, Tootie Feingold, host of Tootie the Story Lady, Ray Schmidt, host of The Green Grocer, Dan and Jenna, hosts of Let's Go Camping with Dan and Jenna. And who could forget Dave, host of Chopper Dave's Rush Hour Roundup. While Fraser was settling in, Marty was able to crack the Weeping Lotus case, an unsolved murder from his years as a detective. In 1956, a sex worker, a.k.a. a woman of the night, named Helen, was shot and the killer clumsily tried to hide her body in a bowling bag. This case had it all. Sex, jealousy, revenge, even a monkey named Coco. Perhaps this could be my next podcast. My agent Ryan tells me that people are sick for that sort of thing. The the murder stuff. Uh, disgusting people, all of you. Horrible. Marty promised Helen's mother that he would find her killer, and in 1995, the year of Toy Story, he finally put the pieces together. He determined it was one of their own, a Seattle PD officer named Detective Shelby, who pulled the trigger. For 30 years, everyone thought Helen wrote help in the dirt. But she didn't. She tried to write Shelby, like Detective Shelby. Someone... Detective Shelby kicked dirt over the S. Marty made a call, and Shelby cracked like a nut. Another important milestone in Marty's life happened in 1995, the year of Toy Story. While ice fishing with his sons, he worked up the courage to tell them something he had wanted to say their whole lives. That he loved them. The boys, of course, reciprocated. My father never said it, but he also never loved me. He loved a lot of things, though. Uh, Johnny Walker Black, the ponies, the legendary tales of King Arthur. Things were going well for the Cranes in 1995. Fraser had immersed himself in his new life, and Marty was beginning to open up. Niles, however, was in... For quite a shock. 
he and Maris had been having some issues over the years, nothing too serious. But in late 1995, again the year of Toy Story, Maris disappeared, leaving no note, nothing to indicate where she had gone. After scaring Niles half to death, she reappeared three days later. She had gone on a shopping spree in New York City. Niles put his foot down. What she had done was unacceptable. Maris listened to Niles' worry and responded with a simple request. She wanted a divorce. That sounds like a good place to call this episode. When we return, um, a, 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 a lot of things, many things. I'm not entirely sure uh, what we're going to cover. Um, everything's a mess right now. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm filthy. Clean me up. This is Dr. Howard Lyon, and that's a wrap on this episode of The Fraser Files. Thank you for listening to The Fraser Files. The Fraser Files was researched, written, and performed by Stephen Winchell and developed for audio by Stephen Winchell and Ian Abramson. Directed by Lara Unterstall, with audio recording and production by Adam Goron. Music by Stephen Winchell and Takuya Yoshida. If you enjoyed our program, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. You can find us on social media at Fraser Files, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Blue Sky. You can also send us an email at FraserFilesPod at gmail.com. Thank you again for exploring the rich world of Fraser Crane with us.